Welcome, folks, to another edition of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 60 years, my passion has been aviation. I was fortunate enough to fly KC-135s in a 24-and-a-half-year Air Force career and then go into uh, defense industry designing cockpits for airplanes. If you ask any pilot what the definition of flying is, they will tell you long periods of boredom interrupted by short intermittent periods of extreme terror. Our show investigates the tactics, techniques, and procedures aviators created or cultivated during these extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and private flying operations. Our exploration gives listeners practical advice on how the world of aviation works and how it applies to business too and expands critical thinking skills and expertise in the air and on the ground. Special thanks to the book Tanker Pilot for sponsoring this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I was a joint specialty officer, a JSO, by virtue of going through the Joint Forces Staff College, but I'd been involved in a lot of joint and multinational operations before I got to the school. And today what I want to do is share with you some of those lessons I learned from being around all of these U.S. service and multinational partners and tell you a little bit about how I think it applies to business. So grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in. And let's begin another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. In the Air Force world, the KC-135 is known as a low-density, high-demand asset. In civilian speak, that means there's not enough of them to go around. There's only, I think, 417 KC-135s in the United States inventory. There was 59 KC-10s. I think that's down to 55 now because some of them are already going to the boneyard, if you can believe that. The KC-135, 60 years old, still out there flying, and KC-10s are going to the boneyard. We used to joke about that. But everyone needs gas. That's the one thing about exercises, multinational operations. Everybody needs gas. And the KC-135 and KC-10 fleet are the world's air-refueling workhorses simply because we have more tankers than anybody else. There's two events that I absolutely loved when I was flying tankers. And that was first flying in these great big exercises. Typically we were refueling Air Force, but a lot of times Navy and Marine Corps airplanes too when we were over in Okinawa. So we got a lot of experience dealing with with other service partners, which was a lot of fun. The other thing that I got to participate in was all of these multinational exercises, particularly when we were in the Pacific. In the Pacific, we'd go to Thailand, we'd go to Malaysia, we'd go to Singapore, <laughs> we'd go down to Australia. And, and the reason I laugh in Australia is during one exercise, we go, okay, what are the training rules? And the guy, the Aussie on the stage goes, rules? What do you mean rules? Well, we got to have some kind of flying rules. He goes, okay, don't go supersonic down the nude beaches. <laughs> Okay, don't go supersonic within 25 miles of the Darwin Tech end. Uh, and we told him, of course, we have a whole rule book on things that we can do. So it was just a lot of fun dealing with all of these different allied partners. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about some of them, okay? A lot of people have talked about the French. We've heard all kinds of jokes about the French military. I have only dealt with their Navy and their Air Force during Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan. And let me tell you something, folks. They were some of the most professional people that I've ever dealt with. They were absolute warriors. They were very good at their jobs, very good at what they did. And the tankers were critical to their aircraft carrier, Charles de Gaulle, being off the coast of Pakistan and flying their N-10 darts. Their N-10 darts are pigs when it comes to gas consumption. They require a lot of gas. They had to hook up like every 25 minutes and they can only do it on KC-10s, which is fine because the KC-10 has the soft basket. When the time came for them to actually drop bombs over Afghanistan, it was an Air Force KC-10 that got them there and they came to me and gave me a... Uh, silver ashtray off of the Charles de Gaulle because they were so happy with the support that they had got. They also gave me a Charles de Gaulle uh, ball cap. Really, really fun working with the French. During the invasion of Iraq, 
they had a planner at the CAOC that was doing all of the planning and execution for the F-18s that had come over from Australia. The guy that was the planner was one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Big, tall guy, about six foot seven. You'd see him on a street corner and you'd go, "Mm, yeah, okay, he looks like he's half asleep. He had his doctorate in quantum physics. I had to go look up what quantum physics was. He was wicked smart. And like the Brits, when it was time to work hard, they worked hard. When it was time to play hard, they played hard too. Working with the Brits was always a lot of fun. And I got to work closely with the Royal Air Force when I was at Inserlik, Turkey during Operation Northern Watch. They had Jaguars that had their Raptor reconnaissance pod on the bottom. They were taking a lot of pictures and their VC-10s were refueling not only the Jags, but the Marine Corps (laughs) EA-6Bs. During these flights, they would have ham and cheese sandwiches because it's got a full-up galley in the VC-10. They have these foot-long ham and cheese sandwiches going out to the restricted operating zone uh, north of Iraq and then have bacon and cheese on the way back. The basket operators would make these things and hand them out. It was just a lot of fun being with the Brits. And of course, on Friday nights, we would all get together as a coalition and we'd have these parties that would go well into the night. The Brits always had gin and tonic. That was kind of their favorite thing. But it was just wonderful to be around them and talk to them and talk to them about air refueling and all the things that they were doing in the VC-10s, getting ready to go to the A380 multi-role tanker transport, which they have now, they call the Voyager. It was just fun being around the Brits. And of course, being at Milden Hall and Fairford, talking to the British folks there, again, the great coalition partners, a lot of fun to be around. Not too long ago, I was talking to one of the commanders that I've worked for on the phone. And this is a guy I really, really respect, a Navy guy. He was talking about relationships and he was talking about coalition, fighting as a coalition and so forth. I realized while I was talking to him, he now works for one of the big uh, manufacturers. And we were talking about all of these things that we were doing. And I realized a lot of the lessons that I learned while I was in these exercises, both with our sister services in a joint environment and multinationally in these large uh, exercises really apply to business. I want to pass to you some of my lessons learned from joint warfare and how I think some of these apply to business because I have stories from not only flying in the exercises, stories from being in business too. First lesson learned is cultures. Not only the organizational cultures, but the country cultures as well, because we had to deal with both of them. I've never been in an organization that didn't have some type of culture in it, whether it was good or bad, whether it fostered innovation and the ability to really go out and stretch yourself or one that was really toxic that you just didn't want to be a part of and you wanted to avoid at all costs. I've been in both. Two things about being in Okinawa, Japan. That was the culture of the 18th wing while it was being commanded by some of the best commanders I ever, ever had in my KC-135 career. From the wing commander, the vice commander, the ops group commander, all the way down to the squadron command level. It was just a great time to be alive in the KC-135 in Okinawa, Japan because of our organizational culture. But we also had the Japanese culture around us that we had to deal with. Signs when you're going down the freeway in English and in kanji, obviously places to eat. I learned something from being in Okinawa, Japan, both organizationally and country cultures that really helped me get through a couple of rough spots in my career. When I was at the Joint Forces Staff College teaching in the Joint Combined Warfighter School, the school that the government uses to teach campaign planning, deliberate planning, war plans that are always on the shelf, crisis action planning, like what's going on in the Ukraine. That's what we taught. And every class I had people from the Navy, from the Marine Corps, from the Army, from the Air Force, and even our international partners. 
a couple of classes, we actually had people from the government, including one class. I had a guy from the CIA. The very first class that we had was on service and these government agency cultures. And what we would do is the Navy person, guy or gal, would go up to the whiteboard and we were asked the question, okay, when you think Navy, what do you think? First thing came out of everybody's mind, squids. That's the nickname we give to everybody in the Navy, squid. But there was other things, Top Gun. And when we say Top Gun, we mean center of excellence. That's where all of the fighter pilots go to learn how to teach the teachers. Carriers, long deployments, special warfare like SEAL Team 6, all of these things were put up on the board. And usually for each service, there was 20 to 28 of these things. Then we'd have the Marine get up. When you think of Marines, what do you think of? You think of first Jarhead. That's the nickname everybody gives to the Marines. Uh, haircuts, uh, uniforms, just an excellent, excellent fighting force as the Marine Air Ground Task Force gets involved throughout the world. Next came the Army, and everybody would say grunts, but also tanks. The 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, the helicopter unit that took SEAL Team 6 to Abbottabad to Bin Laden's uh, compound. All of these things we'd write on the board. When you got to the Air Force, the first thing everybody mentioned, technology. The technology in our airplanes, the technology in our satellites, our intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance airplanes. Air Force, you think technology. You think space. And the nickname everybody gave us, airheads. When you build an Air Force base, the first thing you guys build is a golf course. We got some pretty cool golf courses. But we also get involved in humanitarian operations. We get involved in moving lots of humanitarian supplies to like tsunami relief in the South Pacific. The CIA guy got up and everybody goes, spooks, secret, snake eaters, kill people, intelligence collection, all of these different things that the CIA does. This exercise was to show everybody, hey, here's what we think when we think cultures, Navy culture, Army culture, Marine culture, Air Force culture, other government agencies, their culture, and how the rest of the world views them. When I was in the business world at Rockwell Collins, I realized that Boeing had its own culture. Sikorsky had its own culture. L3 down in Greenville, Texas had its own culture. One of the things that we did every year during our business development meetings, Rockwell Collins would have somebody that had worked for Boeing or worked for L3 or worked for Sikorsky come up on stage and give a 45-minute kind of intelligence briefing on here's how Boeing thinks. Here's their engineering process. Here's the vision of where they want to go. Here's all of the things that they've got their fingers in. And this intelligence report on them was really showing us, hey, this is the Boeing culture. This is how they think. When the Sikorsky person got up, he told us, they are very smart engineering-wise. They have very innovative things they want to do in rotary wing aircraft. Their bread and butter, of course, is H-60 Blackhawk. And they just would tell us all of these different things about all these different organizations that we as a company were dealing with. It was a great intelligence tool to say, hey, when you're going to deal with these people, remember, this is the things that they do. Here is how they think. Here is their processes. It was like an intelligence report on a competitor on a battlefield or an adversary on a battlefield. And it was great knowledge when we had to go and develop relationships and do business with these folks. I worked on a program while I was at Rockwell Collins that was a top secret asset. That's all I can say about it. And they were upgrading the cockpit. They needed a new communications navigation control panel, which of course we made. The problem was that particular control panel was made by our French facility 
in Toulouse, France. Now, I was the only one allowed to even touch the asset. And that made it kind of difficult to relay to our French employees, hey, here's what they're trying to do. Here's what it's supposed to do. And of course, L3 had specific requirements that they wanted inside the box because of the mission that this particular asset did. We had a terrific program manager that was working at our Toulouse facility that headed up our French contingent. And he was both very engineering savvy and very business savvy. We finally got the box put together and I think it was our second review this control panel and L3 Communications brought over three people from their facility in Greenville, Texas. Taunus was there, was the name of the guy that was their program manager. Our French program manager at Rockwell, our French program manager understood how to create and solidify relationships. So we knocked off early one day of this program review. We all jumped in our cars drove about 25 minutes south of Toulouse to a place called Carcassonne, France. The reason that Carcassonne is such an interesting place, it has a huge medieval castle. Wonderful, picturesque place. Our French program manager scheduled dinner inside the castle at a great French restaurant. I can't read a French menu. So we asked him, hey, what should we get here? I think the restaurant was called La Table de Arias or something like that. And he says, this particular restaurant has great cassoulet or like a casserole. Comes out in a big bowl, big deep bowl. It was delicious. So we all got inside the castle, sat down at this restaurant outside because it was during the summertime and had this wonderful cultural (laughs) feast on all this different French food. Bread, wine, cassoulet, the whole works. And it really helped develop our relationship with L3, Tonus, and his team. During this conversation that we had at the dinner table, L3 told us, hey, here's some other things we're working on. Do you guys have products that can help us in this area? And of course we did. Not only did we cement and solidify the relationship by being in this wonderful cultural setting, but we we're able to also do business development because the customer felt at ease eating French food, bread, and wine. Our L3 partners talked about this for months. Yeah, we got to go back to Toulouse and spend time with your uh, French facility so we can go to Carcassonne and eat again. So, The lessons that I learned from this is, hey, understand the culture of each organization that you're dealing with in business. Because believe me, every company that I worked with had a very different culture. Use the cultural aspects of being like overseas at one of these great, beautiful medieval castles and sit down and have dinner. Here's a great exercise that you can do with both your customers and your competitors. Sit down with a blank sheet of paper, draw a line right down the middle. One side put cultural strengths, the other side put cultural weaknesses. And just list all the different attributes of the companies that you are doing business with and your competitors. It's really an eye-opening exercise when you do this. We did this both on the battlefield with our adversaries. We did this with our customers at Rockwell Collins and our competitors to look and see where we could come up with some kind of business advantage. Because right now, it's difficult in the business world post-COVID-19 to come up with the strengths and weaknesses of not only your own company, but your customers and more importantly, your competitors individually. Do the same thing for yourself. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the things that I need to change to become better spiritually, temporally, mentally, 
and physically and write that list down. And if you get some things that you need to change, then start working on those. I've got a list of eight things that I keep taped to my computer right here in front of me that I need to change. I need to change the culture of Mark Sarah in a couple of areas. And I look at that list almost every day because it's taped right here on my computer. I'm looking at it right now. Next lesson learned, languages. Our sister services, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, have unique languages, as does the Air Force. In the air, we have unique languages. Delta Force, SEAL Team 6 have unique languages that we had to deal with in these different exercises. And one of the biggest hurdles we had to overcome in these joint exercises with our sister services was overcoming some of the language barriers. Now, on an international scale, you can imagine. In NATO, you have all of the different NATO partners, many of them speaking different languages, and that became a challenge, particularly during Operation Allied Force, the air campaign over Kosovo. In a previous episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, I talked about three things that we always say to ourselves in a bad situation. Aviate, navigate, third one, communicate. You've got to be able to communicate amongst the different services and the organizations, as well as with your international partners. Most of them speak pretty good English. Some of them don't speak any English at all. And of course, that can create problems. Some of them, during the exercise, begin speaking their own native language over the radio during some of these intense fights, which I'll talk about here in just a moment. <laughs> but let me give you one funny example from being, again, at the Joint Forces Staff College. As part of that cultural exercise that we did, I would ask everyone, okay, what is the Army like rebel yell? You hear them say it all the time. And it's always, hua, sir. And the term hua, I understand, means heard, understood, and accepted. H-U-A. When you ask the Marines what is like their rebel yell, hoorah, sir. That gunny that was on TV, you heard him say it all the time. <laughs> now, when I asked everybody else, what's the Air Force's rebel yell? I got these blank looks on everybody's faces. And I would say, it's dude. <laughs> and everybody would break out laughing. I'd walk up to one of the students and I'd say, there's your Sunday go to meeting, dude. Hey, glad to meet you, dude. There is your way excited, dude. Oh, dude. As well as your way in trouble, dude. Oh, dude. And I actually had gun camera film from an F-16 that had dropped bombs on an ISIS team of about 30 people going down a street. There is this long pregnant pause after the bomb goes off and the wingman goes, oh, dude, that is part of the language of the different services. During the exercise we did in Thailand was called Cobra Gold we would go down to air bases that we used to fly out of during the Vietnam War. Uban, Udorn, Takli, and we would take F-15s, tankers, the AWACS down, and do this massive exercise with the Thais. The Thai air battle managers would often fly on our AWACS. They would also fly with our F-15s, meaning they're on the same radio channel. And every once in a while, when things got really intense, the Thais would begin speaking their native language, which, of course, none of the Americans understood. And we had a term for this. We call it going Thai secure because the Thais were the only ones that understood what they were saying. So years later, when I got deployed to the Vicenza Combined Air and Space Operations Center for Operation Allied Force, we had all of these different NATO partners in one room together. A lot of different languages. And so I realized during this deployment, 
hey, it's probably a good thing to learn a little bit about each language. Learn a little French, learn a little Italian, learn a little Dutch. And of course, we kept kidding the Brits. You speak the King's English, we speak American English. And there was always some banter back and forth about that. But I wanted to be able to say a few things. Hello, goodbye, thank you. In the different languages of the different countries that had tankers that were involved in Allied force. This was a great way to establish rapport with our international partners. And I realized later on, when I was in the business world at Rockwell, that I needed to do the same thing. I had spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East. And of course, I picked up some of the Arabic language while I was there. Hello, goodbye, thank you, how much does it cost? Things like that that I was able to talk to our Arab partners kind of in their own language. Many of us kept the English to Arabic, Arabic to English dictionary with us on our person. You know, they're those small little dictionaries that we were able to carry around. One of our customers when I was at Rockwell Collins was the Jordanian Air Force. They were upgrading their F-5 Tiger II airplanes that they had been flying for a long time in preparation for selling them to the Ethiopian Air Force. There was going to be this great big huge parade in Ethiopia when these fighters showed up down there and they were trying to upgrade the cockpits with new radios and some new displays, which of course Rockwell Collins had. Our very first meeting with the Jordanians, I remembered what I had learned at the Combined Air and Space Operations Center. And I dug out my Arabic dictionary and started looking at all those words over again. Every first meeting, you always go around the room and introduce yourself. All of my Rockwell employees and, and partners went around the room and began introducing themselves. I was last. And I spoke Arabic to our Jordanian customers. You should have seen their faces. They just lit up when I spoke Arabic to them. Salam alaikum, Sadiq. Kafalik. And they just went nuts when I said that. It's, hello, how are you? This gave them some important information, me talking in Arabic. They knew I had been to the Middle East and I understood things Middle Eastern and their culture. So the next morning when they come in, I walked into the room all, I think, six or seven of them turned to me and go, Salam Alaikum, Mark, Kaifalik. <laughs> Had their arms up and everything. And I go, Laikum Salam, Sadiq. You know? And there was this wonderful exchange between us. But it established almost an instant rapport with them that I had taken the time to remember a little bit of my Arabic language. The second night, we went out to dinner with them. And we were able to discuss some of these cultural things, again, food, because one of the things that I learned and loved when I was over in Saudi Arabia was lamb shawarmas. And I told him, I can't find a good lamb shawarma here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Of course, I'm in the middle of the United States in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Where am I going to find something like that? And they talked about and they talked about being back in Jordan and the places they would go to get all the Arab food and all the different spices and everything. But again, it established this great relationship with them. Funny story about this. We got the airplanes all ready to go down to Ethiopia. Ethiopia was having like its birthday of its independence, this big, huge parade, and the F-5s were going to fly over the parade and the president of Ethiopia. They sent the airplanes down on a ship. And when they got to the dock to unload them, somebody at the Ethiopian dock sawed the wings off to get them out of the boat. Just took some great big metal saw and went zip, zip, and took them right off. And the Jordanians sent us a message telling us, you're not going to believe what happened to these things. We've done all this work to upgrade them, established this great rapport with them. The wings got sawed off of the airplane. Big lesson learned here. Sometimes you're on an airplane for a very long period of time, going to Europe, going to the Pacific, 
take some time to learn a little bit of the language. You cannot believe the doors that open up when you can go and say, hello, goodbye, thank you, how much does it cost? Maybe a few things off of a menu, maybe some of your favorite food in that particular language. And what that does for business development and establishing your relationships with your customers. The next lesson of joint warfare is requirements. The first thing an air mobility command mobility planner is going to ask you is, what are your requirements? If you can't give us good requirements, then there's a probability you're not gonna get airlift or air refueling. Often we have to do missions not knowing the requirements and truly making some things up, like we did in Operation Anaconda. Fortunately, we had just done a study of air refueling over Somalia and Mogadishu, and I had all those numbers fresh in my head of what our customers would require. And our team was able to create a really good plan based on that knowledge. Of course, as soon as we executed, that went right out the window because of how that went down. Where this became critical was during Desert Storm with one of our US services, and that was the Navy. We did not understand how the Navy did their business. And as a matter of fact, in Strategic Air Command in the tanker community, very few people had actually been on an aircraft carrier and understood how the carrier air wings did their business. And at Jeddah International Airport, where I was stationed, the Navy was one of our biggest customers. In any air campaign, over a quarter of our receivers are off of the Navy aircraft carriers and part of the Navy carrier air wings. And we didn't know how they did business. And very few of us understood how they planned, what airspace they needed, how much gas they were gonna to need to fly their missions, all of these things. Fortunately at Jeddah, we had some really smart planners like D-Wright, which I've mentioned in my book and in other places. We asked the Navy if we could come out and see them. We went to the boat. We went out to the aircraft carrier and did a retina to retina briefing with them. And of course, these first meetings, there was a lot of information that the tanker guys were having to absorb because we just didn't know. We'd never dealt with this before. In December of 1990, D-Wright was going out to the aircraft carrier to do more planning with them. There was a huge air tasking order change that covered the first three nights of the Desert Storm Air Campaign, and these changes were fairly big and involved a lot of gas, mostly to the Navy. D-Wright says, hey, wanna come out with me to the John F. Kennedy? I'm not gonna turn down a trip like that, and I got to go with him. I learned more in 48 hours sitting across a table from our Navy partners and customers than probably most of the Strategic Air Command tanker planners knew in their entire careers. It was a great way to learn doing this face-to-face -face customer meeting. And we hammered out a lot of issues. One of the things we always asked them, okay, how have your requirements changed that's gonna change the number of tankers, maybe the, even the airspace, so that we can be effective and efficient in refueling you guys. Now, I'll take effectiveness over efficiency any day of the week when it comes to tanker operations. The other question we got to ask them though is, hey, where do we need to improve? Where are we going wrong here? What's, what are we not doing that you need us to do? And they had a lot of things for us. And of course, this learning curve was very, very steep upward climb at first, but then began started dropping off because every week we were going out to the John F. Kennedy where Admiral Riley Mixon's planning cell was in their secret compartment that they have on board the aircraft carrier. It's called Civic, the Carrier's Information Center, where all of their intelligence, all of their photo collection, uh, all of their target study, everything's done. 
Fortunately for me, they gave me an escort who was also really into photography. And I got to have like my own personal escort throughout the entire ship. One of the things that we did was we went up on the deck and I got to take a lot of great pictures because he knew where to go. Hey Joe was his call sign. Hey Joe was my escort for that 48 hours. I was in a room with them. It was just fantastic to learn from him and sit down at a table at, again, dinner, okay, mid-rats as they call them, and talk to all the different Tomcat pilots. They had A-7 Corsairs in their wing. The last time A-7s flew in combat. A-6s, the organic tanker for the air wings are the A-6s. So I got to learn how they did air refueling, how they looked at it too. This was a tremendous learning opportunity but it came because we did this face-to-face meeting with the Navy on almost a weekly basis. Now, when it came time to execute the air campaign on the 17th of January, everything went off without a hitch with the Navy. We did it completely calm out. We worked out all the issues and everything worked exactly the way we had planned it. And it worked out because we sat in the most secure area on the aircraft carrier face-to-face with our fighter pilot brethren, our attack brethren and sisters, our intelligence brothers and sisters, and learn from them. And of course, they gave us some great intel too. And they gave us this incredible report on the air defenses of Iraq from a group called SPEAR, Strike Projection and Anti-Air Research Division of the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington, D.C. One of the best reports on Saddam's air defense system I ever read. And of course, when we went back in in 2003, that was one of the first things I looked for from our Navy partners. Hey, can we get your spear tips and your spear reports on the status of Saddam's air defense systems? One of the customers that I dealt with when I was working in uh, services at Rockwell Collins was Sikorsky. We went to meetings in Connecticut and one of the folks there in their business development group said, hey, Mark, have you ever been out on the production line? And I said, no, this is the first time I've ever been here. He says, how would you like to go out on the production line and see how the Blackhawks are made? Never gonna turn down an opportunity like that. While my teammates were meeting with other people at Sikorsky, This program manager took me downstairs on the production line of the Black Hawk helicopter. Man, was it a great learning experience. I got to see Black Hawks made literally from the keel up. When we got to the section where they start putting in the Rockwell avionics that go into the Black Hawk helicopter, we spent a lot of time right there. And I got to listen to the people that are building the helicopter, talking to me, the guy that's going to service the helicopter along with their business development guy and really have a conversation about what's in the cockpit, what needs to be in the cockpit, what in the future they need to do when they wanna make it an all glass cockpit. It was just a really, really great face-to-face meeting, not only with the business development, but the guys out on the floor. I learned from them that one of our 365 displays that had been in one of their commercial helicopters had flown for 13,000 hours without a maintenance gripe. That thing operated perfectly for 13,000 hours. And they actually sent us a letter later on confirming that. But I also learned from them, hey, here's some things that we're seeing during the production. Here's some things we're seeing over the service life. And again, That face-to-face meeting is what facilitated all this. I realize that we're going through COVID, we're having to wear masks, and most of you are probably Zoomed out. Hopefully we can get back to normal, whatever the new normal is gonna be. But I can't emphasize how important a face-to-face meeting is when you're sitting down with a customer and you need to understand what are your requirements? Where are the capability gaps or the product gaps that you guys are facing that we need to fix? How can we serve our products better over the period of their lifetime? 
And that was another face-to-face meeting we had with one of our customers that was buying Boeing equipment. We sat down with them and we showed them, here's the equipment, here's the price. Here's the install, here's the price. And I had worked out what's called a performance-based logistics program for them, uh, 85% in capability rate, and showed them over 20 years, this is how much it was going to cost them. And this particular leader from the army that was buying these helicopters looked at our team and said, why would anybody else want to buy from anyone else? You guys have this all mapped out. This was a great way to do this. Again, we were in this face-to-face meeting. They came a long way to see us and we were able to say, here's the equipment, here's the install, here's how we're gonna service it for 20 years, here's how much it's gonna cost. The decision was made, it was easy. And they signed a five-year contract every five years for 20 years for us to be able to put that cockpit in their helicopters, maintain it, test it, and have enough spare parts on the shelf that those helicopters would fly 85% of the time. Now, when they started doing this, their in-commission rate, their flyable rate was like 98.9%. It was amazing. But again, we understood their requirements because we had sat down with them, talked to them, and they had given us their requirements. Something really important in business is understanding the requirements and the best way to do that is a face-to-face meeting. After every war, I always hear, lessons observed, vice lessons learned. We forget what we learned in the previous war. We get to the next one, we have to learn it all over again. One of the things that I was not gonna let happen was the loss of all of this information we had gained from dealing with the Navy customer during Desert Storm. I didn't know how I was gonna do that until I got back to Okinawa, Japan. One of the aircraft carriers involved in Operation Desert Storm was the USS Midway, which had come from Japan. So I wanted to make sure that all of that knowledge was kept somewhere, but more importantly, we educated the tanker force on how to do it. So we began doing exercise with the USS Midway and subsequently it was replaced and mothballed and the USS Independence came over to replace it. Carrier Air Wing 5 was on the Independence. And of course, I did the exact same thing. Whenever we did these exercises with Carrier Air Wing 5 and the USS Independence Battle Group, I always made sure working in weapons and tactics, doing all of the plans, that our guys and gals got to go out to the aircraft carrier to see how they did business. Our AWACS weapons controllers flew on their E-2 Hawkeyes. Our F-15 fighter pilots flew in the back seats of their F-14s. Later on, I got to fly in an S-3, not while I was in Okinawa, Japan. But again, we couldn't lose all of this knowledge. And fortunately, we had this great big exercise from a previous episode, I talked about this, Exercise ZZ Top, where we had this cross flow of information. And a matter of fact, we had brand new Sikorsky Blackhawk helicopters. Uh, they're called Pavehawk Rescue Helicopters. And the one thing that they had not done yet to make them fully mission qualified was land on ships. So guess what we did? We brought instructors from the Navy. They flew with our Pavehawk guys out to the aircraft carrier, taught them how to land on the aircraft carrier, took them out to the Aegis cruiser, taught them how to land on the back of the Aegis cruiser. Mission accomplished. Now they're all mission qualified. It was great. It was Our leadership was so pleased because they never had to turn in another report saying, well, our helicopter guys are all qualified except for this, landing on ships. And our rescue helicopter squadron, of course, took that knowledge and wrote it all down somewhere. In 1998, when I went upstairs to AMC DO staff, they handed me a package, go build a KC-135 weapons school, which I've talked about in my book and in other episodes. When the initial cadre got together, there was only one guy who had been on aircraft carriers 
and had been on aircraft carriers multiple times. That was me. We had to put, we had to put in our syllabus education and training on how to deal with the Navy, how to refuel the Navy. And I had that corporate knowledge. So we put in the syllabus what we called joint air operations, which focused solely on how to deal with the Navy. And I think we had just a few things on how the Marine Air Ground Task Force operated, but mostly a Navy focus on that education. <clears throat> Where do I go to find all of that corporate knowledge? Well, of course, there's only one place to go. The Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center at Fallon, Nevada. And Fallon, Nevada is also the home of Top Gun, the Navy's Air Warfare Center of Excellence. I'd set up meetings to meet with different people at the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center and Top Gun, but I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to go. So the first place I went was to one of their air refueling planners, an S3 guy. And I said, hey, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is the education and training I'm trying to capture. Where do I go to find that knowledge? And he said, oh, that would be our TAC memo. And I'm like, what's that? I don't know what TAC memo is. And he says, oh, it's our Bible on how we do long-range strike and air warfare. I said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Pulling a copy of that thing out, I'm reading through it, and it has everything I need to teach the Air Force tanker guys, all right there. Even had a chapter on air refueling. Couldn't believe it. The name of it was about to change. It changed to the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Manual just a few months later. It was going through its last revision before it went to the Admiral and got approved. While I was there, of course, I went over to the Top Gun guys. I had to talk to them too. And I told them, hey, this is what we're trying to do. We are trying to develop a division of the weapons school on air refueling. We're trying to create this center of excellence for air refueling at Fairchild Air Force Base, and we need your help. How can we teach all of this stuff? The guy that I was sitting across from, his call sign was Toast. He was a Tomcat guy. And he goes, oh, here's how you do this. Here's how you develop the syllabus. Here's how I'd work through all of the Navy issues that we have with air refueling with the, the big wing. That's what they call us, the big wing tanker. These are the challenges that we have. All of this was great information that I needed to put in my syllabus, but he always referred me back to the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Manual, which I could download off of the classified, what's called Cipernet. When I got back to Spokane, Washington, went into our intelligence area where we had our classified internet and immediately went to the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center Website, classified website, and there it was. Naval Strike and Air Warfare Manual, newly approved, and I downloaded it. I created the Joint Air Operations portion of the syllabus of the KC-135 Weapons School directly from the Navy's publications. And more importantly, Top Gun and the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center became our approval authority. Every time that they made a revision, they would come to me and say, hey, Mark, we made a revision to these chapters. Here's what's going on. I would take my courseware to them at Top Gun and they were the approval authority kind of for my section. They were the ones that QC'd it, make sure I was teaching the right things. I was going the right directions, teaching the right principles and concepts. It was a perfect setup. Now, once I developed this portion of the syllabus, it was time to go into execution. Our first class, it took six hours to go through all of the information on how you do planning and execution with the Navy. I also included theater ballistic missile defense because they were guarding our bases. I also had to put in how do they defend the tankers, not only from the air, but from the ground. A tremendous opportunity came up. We were able to go out to the USS Constellation during what's called its COP2X. It's like their final battle problem, their, their final grade before they deploy. Three of us went out on board the USS Constellation during this week-long COP2X. 
we got to see how all of the information we were teaching was actually being applied. Two of our tankers came down to March Air Force Base and were refueling the carrier air wing on the Constellation on some of these long range strikes and some of these air defense exercises. And we came up with some new concepts while we were on the ship based on the threats and the final battle problem that they were facing. At the end of the week, the Admiral looked at the three of us and he says to us, okay, one of you three is coming with me when I deploy. I don't care which one of you is coming with me. You decide, flip a coin, whatever you do. It is imperative that I have a tanker guy on my aircraft carrier when I'm in the Northern Arabian Gulf, possibly fighting the Iraqis, maybe even the Iranians. He thought so much of the information that we had and how we were able to help him plan through the air refueling problems that he was facing for the air defense and the long range strike portions of his basically final exam before he deployed. While I was at Top Gun, I asked Toast, hey, is there a way we can get our students to come down to San Diego and go on a carrier, a cruiser, and the Air Operations Center afloat ship, the USS Coronado. He goes, oh yeah, all you do is talk to these guys, okay? And they'll set all that up. They'd love to have you, I'm sure. What we did during the three classes that I taught, the Joint Air Operations portion of the syllabus, is we would spend six hours in academics, hop on an Alaska Airlines plane that flew from Spokane straight to San Diego and Lindbergh Field, and we would actually go on board these ships. The first day was on the USS Coronado, understanding how their Air Operations Center afloat worked. The afternoon was spent on either a cruiser or a destroyer, and they would show us, here's what we do, here's how we defend you guys, here's some concepts we're working on, and then that night we would put all of our bags on the aircraft carrier. The next morning, we would either go out to see with the aircraft carrier or we'd get on the carrier onboard delivery airplane, the C-2, and fly out to the aircraft carrier and spend at least a night on the aircraft carrier talking with all of the different department heads on the ship. We went into their air traffic control center. We went into their planning center. We went up to their control tower. We went to the different squadrons. At night, I'd have the students give a briefing that we had created, show all of the pilots in the different ready rooms. And then the next day, we would finish up 17 training objectives that we had just on the aircraft carrier alone. I wanted to make sure we never had this desert storm problem again. At the end of my time at the KC-135 Combat Employment School, it was called that time, now the 509th Weapons School, it was time for us to revise what's called our 3-1 Volume 2, our Classified Air Refueling Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures Manual. And they made me the final editor. I did a complete rewrite of the entire book. It as a matter of fact, it scared people because of all the stuff that we were going to put in it and all the changes we we're going to put in. But we had all of this knowledge from developing the Combat Employment School, now the 509th Weapons School, that we could put in there. And I put one chapter just on naval refueling so that our tactics, techniques, and procedures were solidified on how to plan and execute Navy refueling missions. That 3-1 Volume 22 was finally approved in April of 2001. When we went to war on September 11th of 2001, months later, all of that information that we had gained from dealing with the Navy, refueling with the Navy, was now set in our doctrine manual, was set in our tactics, techniques, and procedures manual. Later on, we developed our training manual, which is called a 3-3 volume, and it has the same thing in it. Here's how you do planning execution with the Navy. I wanted to make sure we never had this capability gap again. And this is why education is so important when it comes to dealing with our customers, like the Navy. When I got hired by Rockwell Collins, my first job was a systems engineering manager, 
and I managed about 12 systems engineers. I used to joke with my boss, I've gone as far in engineering as my political science degree would allow, meaning I had a lot I needed to learn in systems engineering to be able to do some of the projects we were assigned. The one thing that helped me the most was, of course, my experience in all these different airplanes. I understood what had to be in a cockpit in order to be able to aviate, navigate, and communicate. And in some cases, fire control, weapons control. My systems engineering manager partner, who had another group, helped me understand how system engineering works. And he gave me a book, a fairly thick book, but I went through that and it was just like going through the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Manual. It had everything I needed to learn how to do systems engineering in my tanker pilot brain. And it was a great education for me and it helped me a lot. Now, when I went to sales in the services department, we had some classes where people came in and taught us. One of them was strategic selling. Another great opportunity to learn how to look at strategic and operational sales. And again, it went back to the, some of the same things. What's the company's culture? What are the red flags? What are the green flags? How do they approach engineering? How do they do their sales? What is their planning cycle? What is their business cycle? All of these different things. Probably some of the best classes I went to though were from Dartis Communication on how to communicate in sales. When we had dealt with that one customer I told you about that had army helicopters, the reason that we developed our briefing the way we did was because of our education with Dartis Communications. I can't say enough good things about Dartis Communications. Those of you that are in business really need to look into this because they had an incredible approach to how to sell our products. See, I worked with a lot of engineers and they talked in engineer speak. They talked about how the Trons were gonna do this, what the decibels were, all those kinds of things. And to me, as an old tanker pilot, that didn't mean a thing. But when you told me that now this radio can be set on top of a mountain and have a 250 to 270 mile range in the UHF frequency spectrum, I understood that. And that's how Dartus changed the way we did things and the way we communicated to our customers. It was a fantastic education. And man, I wish I had these books still because not only was it about communicating and sales to your customers, but it actually had a portion of it. How you communicate with your spouse, partner, with your kids, it was really informative. And when you went through this sales process with your family, and sometimes in these arguments, it worked almost every time. <laughs> it was really amazing. But the big thing was, this communications education allowed us to change our doctrine and solidify the way that we talk to our customers so that when the time came, again, here is the equipment, here is the install, here's how we're gonna service it for 20 years. They helped us develop that concept and it was virtually unbeatable. When we used that approach in our business meetings, based on the education that we got from Dartus and these books that they gave us to help us basically formulate our PowerPoint briefings and to formulate our uh, sales pitch, it was unbeatable. That's why that particular decision maker from this hel Army helicopter group says, why would anybody go to anybody else? You just spelled out everything that we need to make this decision. After we'd taken these classes and this education from Dartus, from that education, we were able to go and basically change the way our company did business with our customers, changing the way our slides looked, 
changing the way that we talk to our customers. And it had an effect on us literally almost overnight. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, how we look at joint warfare and the similarities that joint warfare has with being in business with customers, international partners all around the world. Thanks once again to Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. The book can be found in all four formats on Amazon, hardback, softback, Kindle, and Audible. Previous episodes of our show can be found at my website, marcusera.com, in the podcast pull-down box. I've also added in the show notes links to Navy prints that you can put on the walls of your home office or hangar from wallpilot.com. I hope you'll share this and previous episodes with members of your family and your friends. Thanks again for listening to us, and we'll talk to you again next week.